Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Our guest this week is Betsy Hodges who is, among other things, a speaker, writer, activist, and advisor to cities seeking to improve equitable outcomes for people of color. She's been on the show a few times, but we've never spoken very much about the reason you might recognize her name. She is the former mayor of Minneapolis, and her tenure here was eventful. One event was the shooting of Jamar Clark, a black man, by white police officers. Protests over that shooting led to a two-week occupation of the 4th Precinct Police Station here and endless backseat mayoring about how she handled the situation. And for five years, she's let people opine without her input. And even after the initial George Floyd uprisings, she stayed quiet. But last week, she wrote about it. She wrote a piece in the New York Times about her experience after the Jamar Clark shooting, coming to terms with the hypocrisy of what white liberals say they want from police and what they actually expect from police. So, finally, I will get to talk to my friend Betsy publicly about how her tenure as mayor shaped how she sees the world now. Though before that, we're going to have to talk about the conversion experience that started her on the journey to being mayor and brought her to the steps of the 4th Precinct. Coming right up, Betsy Hodges. Betsy Hodges, welcome back to my show. Hello, Anna. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I suppose I want to get out of the way that this is a completely biased interview. You are one of my very good friends. But you are also the perfect person to talk about conversion experiences, especially around race. I know in your long career of thinking about race, you've sort of had several different epiphanies. But there's one that you've kind of marked as the place where your life changed. Do you want to take us into that moment? Sure. And it is 100% true that this moment changed the entire direction of my life. It was April of 1992. I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was working the overnight shift at a home for people with major mental illness. I was a, a counselor aide there. And I was maybe three years into recovery. Uh, and... I showed up that night and was prepared to do what I always did, which was count the pills. You know, at the beginning of my shift and the end of my shift, I count everybody's pills, hang out with the residents for a while. They go to bed and then I would either read 
watch TV or watch a movie all night long. And I, that night, uh, I did what I did most nights is I turned on the TV to watch Dennis Miller's late night talk show. And for those of you keeping score, Dennis, yes, that Dennis Miller, the conservative Dennis Miller had a talk show. He was not conservative at the time. And uh, I was a big fan of his and I watched his show every night and I watched him come on screen to give his monologue, but there were no jokes. Uh, He just said that he was stunned at the outcome. And he had apparently arrived at his studio between the time the five officers who beat Rodney King were acquitted and the time when the uprisings in Los Angeles started, because many shows that night didn't even record, uh, but his did. And he was just stunned by that outcome. He was visibly pale. And I remember looking at the television screen and thinking, what is he talking about? Uh, What is he talking about? And I switched over to CNN, which at the time was the only 24-hour news channel. And it was much more news reporting than news commentary. And they were showing coverage of the uprisings in L.A. in real time, as far as I could tell. And I just remember watching that all night. And I was crying And I remember having a series of thoughts, and I don't condense this to make it a better story. I actually did have this series of thought that night, which was one, this is about me, right? My people are the ones who made this decision. The jury was almost entirely white people, and um, they are the ones who made the decision to acquit those officers. So I thought that thought, I thought, wow, this is about me. This is about my people. This reflects on my people. Uh, I remember thinking, too, that this was, you know, this was a moment of clarity. And I could just see that not only was this about my people and that this was about me, that it was understandable to me why people were so upset about that verdict. There was something I could see and understand in that moment that I think had been invisible to me up until then. I was 22. I was raised in the very white suburbs of Minneapolis. Uh, Race had been a mystery to me until I had gotten to college where I had added a sociology major to my psychology major. But even with that understanding, uh, this moment was very illuminating. So I had this thought, this is about me. Uh, It is understandable to me in a new way why people are so upset and why they are, you know, having uprisings in Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, three, I have a voice that white people who may not be able to hear a voice of color might be able to hear. Like, as a white person, they might hear me through because they don't have a, another layer of bias against my voice that they, ha- that they might have against people of color. And I remember thinking four, okay, so I need to get to work. I had been, like I said, I was in early recovery. There were some challenges I had in early recovery that I was dealing with. Uh, and I was, 
you know, kind of hiding out in very liberal, progressive enclaves of Albuquerque uh, with folks. And I just remember thinking, okay, I'm going to have to get to work. I'm going to have to, you know, it, it isn't a requirement, but at the time I thought it was a requirement to grow my hair out and shave my legs and get a suit and get to work. Uh, and so uh, from there, I decided to pursue, to go to graduate school in sociology. I had been thinking about psychology and, and was pursuing theater at the time, actually. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go study race and class. So I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, which has one of the uh, best reputed sociology departments in the country to study race and class, which I did. Um, and that, that night just changed my entire path. I just made different decisions about my life and what to do with it based on that night. So two things strike me about that story. One is perhaps the one that's the most obvious to listeners, which is how striking the parallel between your story about the Rodney King uprising, the parallel between that and what has happened here in Minneapolis over the past few months. The number of white people who seem to have followed that same, at least a few of those uh, thoughts that you had. Um, that seems to have been a moment of conversion for a lot of people, and not just in Minneapolis. But the other thing that occurs to me is something that's been a mystery we continue to probe throughout this season of the show, which is what allows someone to be in a place where they can have those thoughts, where they can be convinced of something, where they can experience a moment of clarity. Something about who you are and what your journey was put you in a place on that night that when you saw those images, you had the series of thoughts that changed your life. Millions of Americans, millions of liberal white women, probably, saw that same set of images, had maybe somewhat similar background. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's a small percentage of them that had their life changed by it. I would imagine the same thing. Although I would say their lives were changed. What they did about that change is a different story. But I think all of us were changed by what we saw, whether it made us retreat more fully into willful ignorance, whether it made us see things freshly for a while and other things crept in, whether, you know, there's all sorts of ways that people could respond to those to those moments, but but we're never the same afterwards. We're never the same afterwards. I will say that. I'm not sure what allowed me to see that in that moment. I know there had been a prior sort of period of revelation for me when I was in my first year in college and I had moved away from Minnesota. I was in college. I took my first sociology course with Judy Porter at Bryn Mawr College and it was the sociology of poverty. And I took it in part because one of my friends had been taking it and had been taking classes with her and I really liked him and I really wanted to see what he was so excited about. And I, uh, I showed up in the class and she started talking about race as a social system, which sociology is 
pretty good at doing. And I remember being so relieved and just awestruck that finally there were words and an explanation for what I had been experiencing in my life without an ability to understand what was happening. I grew up, as I said, in a very white, wealthy suburb of Minneapolis uh, in the mid 80s, no less. And um, it was very confusing to me. The, the, the race and class dynamics, I could feel them, but I couldn't name them or describe them. And when I sat down in Judy's class, I just remember hearing words that put a name to what I had experienced and been so confused by and upset by and didn't know what it was. But I didn't understand what it meant for me as a white person until that until that night in April in 1992. And there was just this moment where the veil, the veil was pulled away from my eyes and I could really see that the functioning of race in such large measure was about the convenience and comfort of white people. And that it was about us and what we were choosing and what we were doing and why. And that my impulse as a white person who was really against racism, my impulse to go to communities of color and do the work there was a sincere impulse, but I understood it to be at that point a misguided one and that the real work needed to happen with other white people. And uh, that that would be my role and that I would pursue that. And so that drove me uh, to to my work in graduate school, it drove me to my work in politics, and it drives my work now. It sounds almost like part of your realization was that other Betsy's growing up in white suburbs in the world needed to have someone to talk to them about this stuff because it's because you were hungry for it, right? When you went to college, and there didn't exist in your world at that age the language or the framework or anything to understand race and class, right? Right. I think the reason why I flashed to the idea that post-revelatory Betsy might have had somewhere in her mind, oh, I need to take this message to other people like me, is I think a lot of conversion experiences do lead to that kind of thought specifically, which is, oh, my life has been changed. I need to share this with other people who may be going through exactly what I was going through. Yes, I think that was part of it. I, I think it was also driven by the motivation that uh, I could also see and understand in a new and visceral way that the way white whiteness operates through white people, the way whiteness operates was the source of a great deal of pain for a great many people. And I did later come to understand that causing that pain is a source of pain for us as white people, whether we can acknowledge it or see it or not, uh, but really motivated by that. And I do understand the point you're making. Yes, I wanted to go reach my brothers and sisters, my white brothers and sisters, my white siblings, uh, and say, this is on us. This thing that we are upset about is on us in a very particular way. And we can be the source 
of a solution for each other that creates the world we say we want. We don't know how to create it. We don't know always how to act on it. Uh, our, 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 our better impulses don't always win out because we get very scared. But it is possible to create a better world that isn't designed just for us, but that we are part of. In thinking about what might have set the stage for this experience on that night, the other thing that occurs to me is something you mentioned as a by the way, which is that you were pretty far along the early road of recovery, let's say. Um, And I wonder if you think that those tools were a part of what enabled you to experience those images and that news that so many people were upset by, right? Like, that's the thing that everyone, not everyone, I guess, but many, many, many white people saw those things and were like, oh, this is very upsetting. But you took some other steps beyond this is very upsetting. Yes, as I, as I, as I sit here, uh, you know, going on 30 years later, reflecting on my life. Yes, I took some other steps besides this is upsetting. And when, do you think that, that the tools of recovery had a, had a role in that? You know, one of the gifts of recovery was just the ability to make eye contact with my life and to see something difficult and not look away and trust that I had what I, I needed to make it through. That is one of the gifts of recovery in general. And I think it did come into play here. Um, The other gift was really the gift of service. The idea that being of service to other people is a really great way to make your own life better. And not in a codependent way, not in a, oh my gosh, I have to give everything up about myself uh, to be worthy in the world. But the idea that service from a genuine place of wanting things to go well for others as well as myself was a really great way to expand my world and my life view. I think that also, I think that also played a part in my willingness to stay in that moment of discomfort and make new decisions about my relationship to it. And how would you distinguish that between just the ability to be upset and the ability to sit with those uncomfortable feelings? Well, I would say one, I would say both impulses are understandable. Uh, I would say the impulse to look away and the lack of facility with discomfort and what to do about it is part of our training as white people. Like as whiteness gets laid in on us, one of the things it does is it, at least I, I think particularly for middle class white people, the sort of whiteness that we get the whiteness that we get, um, there's a lot of, we never want to be embarrassed. We never want to make a mistake. And uh, we really want comfort. Whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. So the first guest you had on the podcast this season uh, just so beautifully talked about cognitive dissonance. And 
with whiteness and on the white left, there is cognitive dissonance. That's one thing I've come to be able to see over time is that on the left, the discomfort of whiteness is the cognitive dissonance between how we think the world should be, how the world is, and our role in how the world is vis-a-vis how we think it should be. And we know that we benefit from how the world is. We also know that the world is set up very badly for everybody besides us. And we feel bad about that, right? We have a certain dissonance around that. But our the human part of us wants to change that. The human part of us wants wants the world to be set up well for everybody, including us, but not only us, and including people of color and indigenous people. We want the world to be set up well for everybody. That's the human part of us. The white part of us wants comfort. And whiteness often wins out. And so that's why we pursue comfort rather than change. Often our policies, and that's, you know, that the piece that I wrote in the New York Times ref- is, is my reflection on that notion in America's cities in general and around policing in particular. This idea that our cognitive dissonance, our whiteness really wants to just be comfortable again. And so fine, do a pilot project so I can feel less bad. But when it comes time to actually move away from the discomfort of the status quo into the discomfort of change, that's something that we either don't support vocally we don't advocate for, or, and very commonly, we actually advocate against because our whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And this is a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So I have a very important personal motto. It used to be on my uh, Twitter bio, and that is, you can always start your day over again. It is an important thing for me to believe because when I have a bad day, I need to be able to let it go, right? And you can. You can really start your day all over again. There is the saying that drinkers have, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Well, it's 7 a.m. somewhere. You can have breakfast. That is the way that I sort of mentally mark my new day. No matter how late in the evening it is, if I've had a bad day, I start it over again with a bowl of cereal. And it is Magic Spoon these days. Magic Spoon is your childhood favorite breakfast cereal reimagined for the person who needs to watch your whatever it is you're watching. It has zero grams of sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. There are four flavors, a cocoa, a fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes amazing. It is really exactly like those sugary cereals from your childhood. Keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. My husband prefers the fruity flavor. I like the chocolatey flavor. And if you want to experience these flavors yourself, you can go to magicspoon.com WFLT to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use the promo code WFLT at checkout. You will get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no question asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Parade. Parade was launched by two best friends, Cami and Jack, in October of 2019. Cami, the CEO, is a first-generation Latina. They make gorgeous, 
comfortable, playful underwear. Prices start at $9 and every pair is made with a breathable cotton liner and packaged in 100% compostable packaging that biodegrades within 300 days. Their replay style is made of recycled nylon yarns and for every sale made, 1% goes to Planned Parenthood. Parade features four unique core styles, a thong, boy short, cheeky, brief, and the high-rise thong and high-cut thong, with sizes ranging from extra small to 3XL. Parade offers 20 different colors, so you can truly select the style you look and love best. And you can match your outfit to the parade underwear you're wearing, or, you know, vice versa. Their underwear is truly buttery soft and designed to never dig in or roll down. Parade has been featured in Refinery29, Hype Bay, The Zoe Report, Forbes, BuzzFeed, Man Repeller, Fashionista, Yahoo, 17, Paper, Nylon, The Cute, Pop Sugar, Allure, and In Style. Selena Gomez even wore the parade scarf in her cover shoot for Dazed. Go to yourparade.com slash friends for free shipping off of five pairs or more. That's yourparade.com slash friends for free shipping off of five or more pairs. Yourparade.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Hydrant. The summer is here. It is crazy hot outside. We have had days of 90 degrees and higher here in Minneapolis, which is bad. We all know you should drink more water when it's hot, but sometimes you don't feel thirsty. And by the time you feel thirsty, it is too late. You are dehydrated. You can't focus. You feel tired. Drinking enough water is critical for a healthy lifestyle. It increases your brain power and boosts your productivity. It prevents headaches and increases your focus. It improves your skin and your mood. It helps you digest and gives you energy. It prevents bad breath and can even help you lose weight. But how much water should you drink? 10 cups? A gallon? The good news is it doesn't have to be so complicated. That is why I start my day with Hydrant. Hydrant helps you hydrate faster. Hydrant is a refreshing electrolyte powder with the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. You mix it directly into water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. If you're looking for that extra boost of energy, there's also Hydrant Plus Caffeine, which contains 100 milligrams of caffeine derived from green tea. And Hydrant is backed by research and developed by an Oxford scientist. It's loved by pro athletes, top performers, celebrities, and has thousands of five-star reviews. It's made with real fruit juice powder, is delicious and refreshing, and comes in a variety of flavors, including the summer-friendly iced tea, lemonade, and fruit punch. My husband and I have a running joke about being dehydrated. That is the first thing we ask each other, no matter if we either of us express a tiny health-related thing. The first thing the other person says is, well, are you dehydrated? And it's a joke, but it's also usually correct. I have now gifted my husband with a whole bunch of hydrant, and he likes it. Um, I think he has the favorite flavor of lime. I still prefer blood orange. If you like or want the caffeinated version, I suggest raspberry lemonade. Hydrant is backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back for a full refund. Try it yourself. See what I'm talking about? Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. Save even more with a monthly subscription. We've got a special deal, too. Our listeners save 25% on their first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash friends and enter promo code friends at the checkout. That's drinkhydrant, D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T, 
com slash friends and enter promo code friends for 25%. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary taste with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. And we are back. So, Betsy, you created the segue for me. Thank you. Because we do need to talk about Minneapolis and about your experience here uh, serving the city in many roles, but uh, most recently as mayor. And an experience that I asked you if it was a conversion experience, and you said it wasn't, but I think it's a really important one to talk about. It is the core of your a New York Times piece that ran uh, last week. And it has to do with how you came into this position as mayor and then what you experienced trying to do change. You described it a little bit um, just recently here, but could you talk more specifically about what that was like? Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that leaders who are trying to change how systems operate and the results they get for people of color who are very deliberate about that, get a lot of pushback from all quarters, including and especially from white liberals and white progressives. And I witness that as mayor myself, and I witness it now as I'm working with cities who are trying to do the same thing. And it's not it's not uncommon. It did take me aback. I didn't have the framework for that full understanding when I started. And I saw it at play uh, in many areas, in the education arena, in the economic development arena, uh, in public works and how the public works master plan gets approached, and certainly in policing and public safety. Uh, All of those realms were places where It was okay to do things that, and by okay, I mean people, particularly white middle class and and, and upper class people, wouldn't object to a summer jobs program for uh, young kids of color. Great. I mean, those programs are important and necessary. I am not arguing that they're not. But those programs don't alter the way that education and the economy function for those same young people of color. And proposals that would change how those systems functioned for people of color and indigenous people in general, let alone young people in specific, those are the ones that were met with the most uh, anger, the most resistance, the most organizing against them. And almost never would people say, I don't want people of color to succeed, but they would object against the systems that they would object against the changes to the system that would, were the most promising for changing ongoing outcomes uh, for people of color and indigenous people. And that would close the gaps and elevate outcomes for everybody that would close the gaps between white people and people of color, but would elevate outcomes for everybody, including white people. But those were the things that people resisted the most and the things that um, took up most of my time as a mayor with that agenda. 
And one of the really interesting things that we're talking about this season is what I think you may have referred to when you were talking about our first guest of the season and cognitive dissonance in this particular example, which is that these white liberals who are resisting systemic change, I am guessing they don't realize that they are doing that, that there is not a s- awareness, oh, I am now doing the thing that is against what I say my values are, right? That is my experience. I can't speak for everybody. I think some of them do know and don't care, but uh, but I do think a large portion of I believe a large portion of well-meaning white people are well-meaning and (laughs) genuinely well-meaning and um, and also don't understand. I mean, it's one of the tricks of whiteness is to convince us that acting out our whiteness is not does not have a racist impact. And if we're realistic with each other about that, that we don't know much about how it works, but that it is at play always, then we can start with each other from where we are and not from where we think we should be, which I think is part of the problem, that we're always trying to start with each other as white people from where we think we should be rather than where we actually are. On the off chance that not everyone listening has read your New York Times op-ed, there is an anecdote in that op-ed that I know is really important to your story about white liberals and about knowing where we are as opposed to where we want to be. I wonder if you could share the um, unfiltered version of that anecdote with us. In 2015... Uh, two Minneapolis police officers shot and killed a man named Jamar Clark, an African-American man named Jamar Clark, in November. And what followed was an 18-day occupation of the grounds of the 4th Police Precinct in Minneapolis. And I was the mayor at the time, and I believe it was the first time that a mayor or a city had, had tried to use what we called at the time 21st century policing principles to address a protest like that, that instead of just going out and arresting everybody, uh, uh, I worked and others worked to negotiate a peaceful ending to that occupation or as peaceful as we could make it ending to that occupation. And While that was happening, you know, there were hundreds and sometimes thousands of demonstrators and protesters on the grounds of the 4th Precinct day and night for that 18 days. And they had, you know, blocked off the street in front of the precinct and had fires in the street and they had erected tents on the land of the 4th Precinct. And there were flare-ups, and I'm not trying to diminish them, but there were Uh, there were moments where things were far more tense between the police officers who were on the grounds sort of guarding the 4th Precinct and the demonstrators and protesters who were there. And there are a lot of stories I could tell uh, about those 18 days, and someday I will. But the one you've asked about is, I knew I was asking the police to do something unusual 
uh, that they had not done before and I don't think police had been asked to do before. I was asking them to have a lower profile rather than a larger profile. And I was asking them to consider that public safety isn't just law enforcement. Uh, for many people, not just police officers and not all police officers, for many people, public safety and law enforcement are the same thing. You go out and you enforce the laws and then the public is safe. And the attitude I was operating under as mayor uh, and still is that public safety, uh, you know, law enforcement is a component of public safety. Perhaps people are making that decision now, but it isn't the be all and end all of public safety that the community has a say in public safety. That was being demonstrated by the way the protesters and the leadership of the protest were also working to keep things as peaceful as possible. Um, but this was an unusual idea for the police officers and I knew that they weren't happy about it. And I knew they needed to hear from me why I was asking them to do it. They knew what I was asking them to do. They just didn't know why. And so I went to shift changes at the fourth precinct Shift changes are when uh, the group of officers who've been patrolling and on duty during the day are leaving and the new officers, uh, the officers who are coming on for the night shift or the next shift are coming in and they talk to each other about what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of things that happen at shift changes. And I went as mayor to shift changes at the 4th Precinct, which was still operating as a precinct to talk to the officers myself about what I had asked them to do and to listen to them uh, uh, about how they felt about it and what they thought about it. I knew they needed to hear it from me uh, and Chief Harto uh, was also doing the same thing, but I knew they needed to hear it from me and I knew I needed to hear from them. And one of the shift changes I went to, there was a, he's a sergeant now, he may have been at the time, uh, a white sergeant, maybe at the time, late 30s, early 40s. And um, he was mad. <laughs> and he told me, I'm trying to think of how I can phrase this without using an F-bomb. Uh, he invited me to have a non-consensual uh, sexual experience uh, the way that I was asking him to have a non-consensual sexual experience at the hands of the protesters, which is how he experienced it. Um, he wanted me to get effed in a place where the sun does not shine, I think is the the farthest I'm willing to go to describe what he wanted to have happen. Because he felt he was being treated in the same way. Yes. And he wanted me to have that experience. Um you know, because people were upset with police. He had to be out there, standing there. Uh, I had asked him not to be reactive. Uh, uh, many of the officers, a great deal of the time, were remarkably non-reactive in the ways that we had asked them to be. Um, uh, it wasn't perfect, but they, you know, they wanted to just go out and arrest everybody. Many of them. I won't speak for all of them. But what they reflected to me was, why can't we just go out there and arrest them? They are breaking the law. They're not supposed to have fires out there. They're not supposed to have tents erected on public lands. They're not supposed to be blocking the street. They're smoking weed. We can smell it in here. They spray painted the, the precinct. They had spray painted graffiti on this precinct, which really upset them because, you know, they reflected to me that that was their home and that was a big sign of disrespect to them. And they were upset about all of it and all of it was illegal. And the tool they had at their disposal was the ability to just arrest these people and have that be the end of it was the overall message that all of them 
were giving me. And I said back, look, you know what will happen if I let you go out there and arrest everybody. Um, aside from, and this is an aside from me personally, aside from thinking that that would be the wrong thing to do, right? Um, the impact of that would be uh, widespread uh, uprisings, upheaval, property damage. Uh, and I want, and this was the message I gave to them. And I want you to go home safe at the end of the day. I want you to go home to your family at the end of your shift. And you know what will happen if you just go out there and arrest everybody willy nilly. You know what will happen. And they did. Um, but it was, you know, that story to me illustrates two things. It, it illustrates that they were being asked to do something new and didn't like it. But it also illustrated that they knew, they knew that they were standing in this place that we have asked them to stand. We meaning white, white liberals, basically. White people in general, I will say, have uh, in our systems that we have created that serve to get us better outcomes than people of color, uh, in general, especially uh, white elites and middle class people, um, they know that we ask them to stand in that breach and then turn around and criticize them for it. And to then add to that, and what I want you to do is just let them criticize you for doing what we have asked you to do, uh, was clearly appalling and understandably so. And to me, that story is about realizing what I have benefited from as a white woman, wealthy-ish white woman, what I've benefited from in terms of police policy, right? That I can make a lot of assumptions about what the police will do to protect me. And I don't have to communicate those things in explicit policy terms. I don't have to ask them to be violent. It is part of the system that I benefit from that they commit violence in my name. Yes. And that if I want them to do something different, then I need to examine what I'm asking them to do every other minute of the day. Yes. And we have to be willing to support actual policy changes that will lead to a different outcome. And that notion scares white people because a lot of white people only hear, oh, so you want me to be unsafe so other people can be more safe. This idea that somehow, uh, first of all, that, that that's how law enforcement works, but second of all, that, that, there, that, there, isn't, that there isn't a policy outcome the assumption that there can't be a non-zero-sum policy outcome when it comes to policing or anything else for that matter, that that all, all sometimes for white people, all we hear is, so you want to redistribute all the negative outcomes uh, to me and you want to redistribute all the positive outcomes to somebody else. Where am I in this picture of this future? And that's, I think, one of the places where white people, we fail each other, is we don't create a picture of what the world looks like for each other uh, with us in it 
what a racially equitable world looks like with us in it. We would all benefit in, in a world of less fear. Yes, oppression is expensive and it's risky and and it's spiritually expensive and risky. And it's fear that keeps it locked into place. And we double down on our fear to keep it locked into place and to respond to our fear. It's, it's nonsensical. And for a lot of white people, we compare, we compare, you know, one of the, as white people, one of the things we do is we compare our whiteness to the way people of color are now. And that's where we get our picture of, well, we're better off in the world. And the invitation that I am doing my best to give to my sibling white people is to compare the world that we have now with our whiteness to the world we could have without it. And the world we could have without it is better. It's way better. And everybody's better off in it, including, but not only us, and not just better off, well off. Yeah, I just keep coming back to that idea that we would live in a world with less fear, less cumulative fear. Right now, fear is distributed unequally. <laughs> and what I think we've been describing is the whiteness tells white people, yes, fear is distributed unequally. And if we change things, then you're going to experience more fear. The, there is a you know, zero-sum amount of fear in the world. And if other people become less scared— you will become more scared. But we can imagine a world where there is just cumulatively less fear. <laughs> there can be just less of it. I agree with you. And the irony, if I use that word correctly, I probably don't. <laughs> but I will say the conundrum is that whiteness itself is predicated on fear. Whiteness is constructed almost whole cloth out of fear that it's fear of losing edge, it's fear of losing property, it's fear of losing something. Whiteness is predicated on fear. And the other thing I, I offer white people is that we have actually already lost the thing we're most afraid of losing, which is the part of our spirit that connects us to the rest of humanity. That the, the wage of whiteness, one of them is disconnection from other people and humanity, which is the fundament of human experience, is that desire for other people, to be close to other people. Not introvert, extrovert, that's not what I'm talking about, but that, that fundamental connectedness in the human family that we are all struggling with in this time of COVID, with this disconnection is showing up in, in myriad ways as dysfunction and unhappiness and difficulty and challenge. And whiteness is made up of all of that. That is that is that is the that is that is the source of whiteness is that fear and this idea that we'll lose something in a world of racial equity is upside down we will actually regain and reclaim our full humanity in a way that makes the material parts of our life better yes but also makes our experience of the material parts of our lives so much better that's the trick of whiteness is to convince us that it's better than the lack of it and what is your hope moving forward from this moment 
I think that there is an aperture that has opened that is in danger of closing at any moment. I hope it stays open longer than shorter. But I think for a lot of my sibling white people, much has been revealed, both because COVID has revealed that the systems are set up poorly for human functioning, and especially poorly for the human functioning of people of color and indigenous people. And that, uh, and black people in particular, and that the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that happened after that has also revealed that these systems are not functioning well uh, for people of color, for African-American people, for indigenous people. And we can see it you know, it's been revealed to a lot of white people in a new and fresh way, in some ways the way it was revealed to me in 1992, and that there's a moment we can take advantage of to invite people to re-examine how we set up our systems and how we set up our communities with each other, and that we need to do that differently. And that's why I wrote the piece that I wrote, because I thought there was a moment when that message could land in a way that it wouldn't when that aperture closes again. And I think... There are people willing to accept that invitation, whatever it means, in a courageous way. And I want to extend that invitation as widely as humanly possible to my sibling white people. Because it's, our, it's, it's better on the other side, I promise. Well, I will continue to take you up on that invitation. And I hope you continue to accept my invitation to come on this show every once in a while. It's been delightful to have you. Thank you, Anna. It's always a delight to talk with you. And that is it for the show. My usual suggestions and requests apply. Please rate and review us if you like, especially if it's a positive review, wherever it is you get your podcast. Please continue to resist conformity and please take care of yourselves. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra sharp cheddar cheese. (sighs) We know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook Cheddar. Extraordinary dairy. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.